we must trust that God is in charge and he's in control and his timing is perfect and he works all things for our good. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. You're listening to Trust, a series preached through the book of Habakkuk. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. What are the four biggest moments in your life thus far? The four days that you could look back and say, these are the most important milestones in my life. For me, I can look back and obviously the day I was born, that was kind of important in my life. Uh, The day that I received Christ, uh, the day that uh, I got married, and then I kind of have to lump these together, the day that I had both of my kids. So uh, if you're stressed out about math, I guess that's five. But think about you for a minute. What what were the most important dates? It, It kind of makes the other days seem less consequential. What if we were to zoom out from my life, from your life, to the whole world? Think of the big events that have shaped world history and changed the course of the world. And we could certainly list a few. If we were just to go back in the last 500 years or so, we would certainly name something like the Gutenberg Printing Press. That was a huge uh, game changer, world changer. We would say the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand II, which kind of propelled the, the world into what we call World War I. Maybe the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, which certainly brought the United States into uh, World War II. And of course, 1977, the year that Star Wars A New Hope came out. Certainly, that was a big day. Now, have you ever considered human history, not from our perspective, but from God's perspective? Think of God's hand at work, not merely in the lives of you and I and his people and individuals, but but over the course of all mankind for all time. Uh, Lloyd-Jones observed this. He said, all history is being directed by God in order to bring his own purpose with respect to the kingdom to pass. So if we were to look at the world from God's perspective, the big four events that have happened in the world would be this. It would be creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. This framework gives... Uh, shape to history. This means that uh, history is not cyclical like the Eastern worldview would believe. Uh, This means that the postmodern existential worldview of history just being random, that's wrong. This means that the secular worldview of history being unstoppable evolution and progress, that that's wrong. See, we have to understand that history has a beginning, has a path, has an end, and it's all been governed by the sovereign counsel and purpose of God for the praise of his glorious grace. And what God says will come to pass. It will come to pass. He is, as we're about to study, the everlasting God, and you and I, we are finite. He is holy, and we were sinners. He is immovable, he's immutable, and we, we are unreliable, we're fickle, and as we just sang, we are prone to wander. And today as we open up the second half of Habakkuk's first chapter, we're going to see the prophet's second complaint to God in the midst of terrifying news. If you weren't here with us last week, we began a new series through this minor prophet, Habakkuk, and his prophecy was written during a time of spiritual idolatry and decline, which followed right after, right on the heels of a time of great revival and reform. Uh, And it happened in the southern kingdom of Judah, 
during the most likely the reign of King Josiah. And rather than addressing the people for God, like many prophets did, Habakkuk actually speaks directly to God. And he had three questions for God in this book. Uh, we'll put them on the screen for you. These are often questions that we ask. Habakkuk asks God, do you care? And then he says, is God fair and is God there? And we learn that Habakkuk addresses God in chapter 1 with that first question, does God care? And we heard God's answer. He does care. He cares about iniquity. He cares about sin. Uh, Judgment will begin with God's house, but not in the way that anyone could have imagined. God replies that my solution to the problem of wickedness in my people And the strife of my people, the violence of my people, is to raise up a more violent source of judgment. The atrocious empire of what's called Neo-Babylon by the means of judgment against Judah. So today we're going to read Habakkuk's response to God's answer. And Habakkuk asks his second question here, is God fair? And many of us have asked that question, is God fair? And so we're going to see four things that Habakkuk has or does in our text. So here's the outline today. If you're taking note, I hope you are. Uh, These four things we're going to see, first of all, in verse 12, we're going to see Habakkuk placing his confidence in God's character and how important that is that we do that when we face a trial. Then in verse 13, we're going to see him question God's consent. Like, God, how can you consent to allow this evil nation to do this? We're going to see him challenging God's course. But not in, a, not in a way of unbelief, in a way of just healthy doubt. I just don't know why you're doing this. Lord, help me understand this. And then we're going to see him preparing for God's correction in chapter 2, verse 1. So that's where we're going. Uh, with that as an outline, let's start with this first idea of placing confidence in God's character. Look at verse 12 of Habakkuk chapter 1. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, and you should have Lord in all caps, that is the transliteration of the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now note with me that, first of all, Habakkuk is asking this question rhetorically, and he's basing his question on the nature of God. He's saying, are you not from everlasting, O Lord? And the implied answer is yes, of course, he is from everlasting. So he's not asking this out of unbelief, like you're not from everlasting. He's he's asking it out of faith. The late Warren Wearsby says, keep in mind, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Like Habakkuk, the doubter questions God and may even debate with God, but the doubter doesn't abandon God. But unbelief is different. It's rebellion against God. It's a refusal to accept what he says and does. Unbelief is an act of the will, while doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. So here the prophet has just received, admittedly, some astonishing news. And so his first response is just to question God. But notice that he's appealing to three areas of God's character. He says, Lord, you are the everlasting God. He says, Lord, you're my God. You're the Holy One. And thirdly, he says, Lord, you are the rock. So let's just spend a minute uh, walking through these. Uh, So first of all, he knows that God is everlasting. He is the covenant-keeping, faithful God, Yahweh. And in contrast to the description of Babylon, who worships their own might as God, Yahweh is set apart. He's He's distinct. He's eternal. The Latin phrase is sui generis. He is in a class by himself. 
He's distinct. There's none like him. There, we can't compare him to anything else or anyone else. He's distinct from creation, and because of that, he's worthy of all praise, all adoration, all exaltation. He alone deserves the glory and the worship. He is from everlasting. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. Let that kind of melt your brain for a few minutes. He has no beginning. He's from everlasting. Uh, John Piper says this uh, in a book that he recently wrote. I'll just quote it, not on the screen. He says, God was the living God when this universe banged into existence. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when William Bradford governed Plymouth Colony. He was the living God in 1966 uh, when it was proclaimed that he was dead and Time Magazine put it on the front cover. And he will be the living God 10 trillion ages from now when all the puny pot shots against his reality will have sunk into oblivion like BBs at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Wow. He is the everlasting God. Amen. Well, secondly, Habakkuk knows God, notice, as my holy one. Listen, he is a personal God. He's my holy one. He's known elsewhere in Scripture as the holy one of Israel. He wanted to identify with his people and to select a peculiar people to show the glory of his great name. And he would not abandon his people forever. And so Habakkuk says, you're, my ho- you're our holy one, the holy one of Israel. You're set apart. You're distinct. The angels cry, holy, holy, holy. But thirdly, he knows God as the rock. He's, he's immovable. He's unshakable. Uh, Isaiah exhorted Israel to, in Isaiah 26, 4, to trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. You and I place our faith in lesser things that are movable, that are shakable. And yet, he is the one who will never change. He's immutable. And we can rest our faith in him. So Habakkuk reminded himself of what, listen, of what he knew was true about God. God is without end. He's eternal. God is without sin. He's holy. God is without change. He's the rock. In God's immutability, though, he would not turn a blind eye to sin. He would judge it. In his holiness, he would not tolerate lawlessness. And in his eternality, God would not cease to exist but he would continue to intervene in the lives of his creation. So listen, Habakkuk views his circumstances in light of who God is, the nature of God, the character of God. He had a right understanding of who God is. Now, I think it is so important that we also understand who God is. I think it's vital that we study what's called theology proper. What is that? That's the actual study of God himself. It's so important that we know the attributes of God, his his communicable and his incommunicable attributes, that we know the nature of God, the character of God. Otherwise, we may be tempted to believe some notions about God that simply aren't true or aren't biblical, but they're fascinations. They're, at worst, heresy. I think it's so important that we know what is true about God. Habakkuk here could have said, well, I don't know, and he he could have gone down a straight path but he comes back to what he knows. See, every religion has some concept about there being plight in the world, and you do something to escape the plight in the world. But not every religion has the concept of a deity or a God. And so who or what God is depends on who you ask. Are there many gods who either get along or fight like siblings, like the polytheists believe? Or are there just two gods, equal in power, equal in authority, kind of a dualistic Uh, masculine and feminine, 
a, a, a masculine-feminine dual godhead like the uh, Wiccan duotheists believe. Is that true? Or uh, are there spirits in everything? God's in everything from the wind to the water to the crops like animists believe. Or is God literally in the universe? Like, like there isn't a personal, knowable, attainable God, but God is in energy and God is in laws and motion and matter and energy and consciousness like the pantheists believe. Or worse, as a Christian, we can also believe some phony things about the one true God. We're monotheists, we believe in one true God, but we can misunderstand even what we believe. Uh, growing up as a kid, just if I'm the only one, that's fine, but raise your hand. Uh, did you ever believe that when it was thundering that God was bowling? Did you ever believe that as a kid? There's a grown-up right now going, really? That, that's not true? <laughs> I didn't realize that. I grew up as a kid, I didn't even understand the Trinity for a while. I think I was accidentally a modalist for a few years. I didn't realize, like, the, the Trinitarian nature of God. Uh, some Christians believe that Jesus wasn't fully God. I don't know how you're still a Christian if you believe that. Uh, or that Jesus sinned at some point in his childhood because they had kids and they're like, it had to happen. Well, that's not understanding the deity of Christ. Some Christians believe that God doesn't allow suffering, but wants us all healthy and wealthy and successful. Other people believe that God doesn't care about sin or that he doesn't truly love his people, but he's out for vengeance against us. Listen, there's a whole host of false notions that we can dream up that simply aren't true. They aren't biblical. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer said this, love this quote. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wow. See, Habakkuk appeals to what he knows is true about God, and so too we must know the nature of God, church, so that when evil befalls us, we don't get tempted to refashion God into our own image. Now notice in verse 12 that Habakkuk is convinced of something. He says, we shall not die. Now, there's some controversy about this word we, because some translations have this read, you shall not die. But I think either way you translate the word, it's a bold statement of faith and affirmation uh, of God's sovereign will. He's either saying, Lord, you have no beginning and no end, and so there's no chance you are going to die. Or he's saying, Lord, aren't you the I am? And so because you have no beginning and no end, I know that you'll be with us even to the end, even through the valley of the shadow of death. So we're not even needed to worry about death because you'll be with us. Either way, Habakkuk looks to the character of God in the midst of the coming storm. And notice that he says uh, in verse 12, you, O Lord, have ordained them as a judgment. You have established them for reproof. You want to circle the word them in both of those instances. He's speaking about Babylon. You've ordained them as a judgment. The word for judgment does not mean destruction, but correction, okay? God is not interested in utterly destroying his people. He wants to merely bring discipline into their lives for their sin. But see, the agent of Babylon was a violent, wicked band of people. So how could a holy God approve of this? And that's the gist of verse 13 in our second idea. Look at verse 13. This is where he questions God's consent. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk is asking, he's wondering how God, who is holy and does not turn a blind eye to sin, how can he seemingly permit a wicked nation like the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to be his instrument 
of judgment against God's set-apart people. He's asking why. Now, by the way, that question did not originate with Habakkuk. Job asked the same question in Job 24.1 on the screen. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? It's not just with Job, though. Jeremiah asked this question in Jeremiah 12.1, where he said, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? It's the question that Asaph asks in Psalm 73. It's a question King David asked multiple times in the Psalms. Why? Why are you not intervening, Lord, when there's clearly wickedness abounding in the earth and in your people? Now, I mentioned this last week, but I do the same thing sometimes. I look around today at the church, and I look at the church of Jesus Christ, and I grieve for the lack of biblical fidelity, the greed, the corruption, the sloth, the indifference, the compromise, the idolatry. And I wonder, Lord, why? Why do you allow false teachers not to be taken out? Lord, we could do this so quickly. It's called lightning. Like, we just solve this. Let's pray for this. Why? Lord, Lord, wasn't there a story in the Old Testament where the ground opened up and the rebels fell in? Lord, let's revisit that. Can we do that again? Let's go back to that. Let's have that happen today. Right in the pulpit, just opens up. Lord, why? Why is this pragmatic branch of evangelicalism called the attractional church? Why is that the fastest growing uh, churches? Why are they not the fastest to incur the wrath of God or the judgment of God? Or maybe bring it home. We say, Lord, why are you using this instrument or this agent in my life to bring about correction? Lord, this is too severe. Lord, I understand time out, but cancer? Lord, I understand that I need to be reproofed and you love me and you discipline those you love, but this discipline seems a little much. I wasn't expecting my life to take that turn. Lord, why? Habakkuk knew God's people needed discipline, but he didn't think Babylon was the appropriate agent. Matthew Henry in his commentary said, God's people need correction, and they deserve it. They must expect it. They shall have it. When wicked men are let loose against them, it is not for their destruction that they may be ruined, but for their correction that they may be reformed. They are not intended for a sword to cut them off, but for a rod to drive out the foolishness that is found in their hearts. Wow. See, I don't believe it's incorrect to ask God questions from a posture of faith. It's when we begin to rewrite his nature and his sovereignty that we get into troubled waters, or worse, we get into heresy. See, when we consider the problem of evil, we're facing three seemingly incompatible truths. These are the three truths that we struggle with. How can these three be true at the same time? That God is good, that God is sovereign, and that there's suffering in the world. How do you reconcile those three? I talked to a lot of college students who used to be in the faith, and they've departed from the faith because they can't reconcile with those three. I love God, but now I'm not so sure. How can he allow this to happen? And many people say you've got to eliminate one of those three. So some Christians would say, well, there's no suffering in the world. That's obviously dumb, right? There's clearly suffering in the world. Or they'd say, eh, maybe God isn't good. They would question the goodness of God, and certainly people will do that. The new atheists do that. Uh, but the, by and far, the largest uh, one that we go to that we try to eliminate is God's sovereignty in the church. People in the church want to eliminate the sovereignty of God. They would say, God didn't know that this is going to happen, or God's not all-powerful. 
And I just want to call some people out because it's tried to be addressed to them and they haven't uh, responded to this. But there's some popular, po- uh, popular pastors today um, in the church, um, two of them, Bill Johnson and Chris Vallotton of Bethel. A lot of you love Bethel's music. I just want you to know that the pastors of that movement believe and teach that God is in charge, but he's not in control. And I said, that can't be true. So I listened to several sermons and, and clearly was said, God would do more in the world, but he can't because his hands are handcuffed. God is unable uh, to act. Now, church, that's not true. That is not biblical. It's one thing to question God from a posture of faith and say, I don't understand why this is happening, but Lord, I still rest in your omnipotence and your goodness, and I I trust you. But listen, it's another thing entirely to rewrite his power and say God's handcuffed, okay? Obviously, these people haven't truly understood the minor prophets. Habakkuk is wrestling with this question, but not rewriting the personal work of God. He's, in fact, eventually he's going to say, maybe I'm wrong here. And now, ultimately, God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, and he's in complete control. And his sovereign counsel coming to fruition in our lives should build in us today unshakable faith. It should cause us to be so distinct from our neighbors that when people see us, they say, there's a living hope in that person. And I don't understand it, but there's something alive in them. And you could say, well, yeah, it's not the caffeine, it's Jesus. I have a living hope within me. The Holy Spirit is alive and active in my life. And that's not a goosebump thing. Uh, that's, that's called a witness thing. I, I'm emboldened by the Holy Spirit to be his witness. So listen, rather than taking Valium, you can find rest and comfort today and sleep at night knowing that God is in control, that he's sovereign. It helps me sleep at night knowing that. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, my goodness, how bad was Babylon? Uh, well, let's find out. Habakkuk describes three aspects of them in verses 14 through 17. So he's going to challenge God's course. Again, not from an unbelief standard, but from just doubt. So verse 14, he says, You, this is God, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And now he says he, but this is a different he. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Don't misunderstand something. The he in that that text is not God. Okay, I just want you to know that. So let's get the analogy here. He's speaking about Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, rather, is speaking about Babylon. Okay, so let's get the analogy. Look at verse 14. Mankind is the fish. Okay, we are the fish. Um, the he in this text is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It's not God, it's the king Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one with the hook, with the net. And then Babylonian armies, the Babylonian armies are the hook and the net themselves. Okay, you guys follow me? So Nebuchadnezzar is the he, the net and the hook is his army, and we are the fish, you know, mankind. So what he's going to do is then break this down into three ideas. He's saying that Babylon was marked by three things. And I think we have them on the screen. Marked by, first of all, cruelty. Notice in verse 15 that Babylon was marked by a reference to hooks. Okay, this is both figurative and literal. It's figurative. It's a picture of a fish being captured uh, by a hook. Um, just being gathered in. And that's a figurative thing, but it's also a literal thing. They actually have writings from Babylon in this time period where they record that armies would often drive a hook through the lower lip 
of their captives and then tie a rope to the captive behind you, to the captive. And they would lead a whole procession of their captives with a hook in their lip. Uh, Not only that, but verse 15 mentions that he gathers people in his net and then he rejoices. There's kind of this sinister revelry at the mistreatment and torture of people. Within about 20 or 30 years of writing this, the whole city of Jerusalem is going to get sacked and carried away captive. And as the people are being led, bound out of the, the promised land and into what's modern day Iraq, into Babylon... Uh, according to Jewish history, Nebuchadnezzar would not even let them stop to even stand there for a moment. He didn't want them to stop and pray because he knew that Yahweh answered prayer. So he made them keep marching, keep walking the entire journey. They stop on the border of uh, the river Euphrates, and he has this ship there. And he begins to take the Torah, their Old Testament, and he begins to um, make sacks out of it, out of the writings. He built these, he constructed these sacks, filled them with sand, and then laid them on all of the sons of Israel for them to carry into the city Uh, of Babylon. This was a cruel nation. We know years later that three Jewish officials would be thrown into a fiery furnace that was heated up seven times hotter than normal because they didn't bow down and worship a statue made of this king. Okay, so cruelty. But secondly, uh, they were marked by idolatry. According to verse 16, the people of Babylon worshiped the net. They worshiped their own military might. We learned in chapter 111 that their own might was their God. They were willing to worship seemingly anything and everything, not just their own might, but history records that the Neo-Babylonian Empire worshipped a bunch of gods. They, worked, they worshipped Anu, who is the god of the sky, so if you look up, you worship. They worshipped Nebo, the god of literature and wisdom, so if you put your nose down in a book, they would worship that. They worshipped Nergal, the sun god, so if you stared into the sun, you would worship. And then they worshipped Ea, the god of magic. Uh, in fact, I thought this was funny, Marvel came up with, with a, uh, a group of pictures of the different Babylonian gods. There they are. There's just a few of them. So they were cruel, they were idolatrous, and thirdly, they were known for luxury. Look at verse 16. It says that by them, by their captives, he, the king, lives in luxury and his food is rich. The ancient city of Babylon was lavish and luxurious. In fact, Herodotus, the Greek historian, records that on the walls, the top of the walls, they would have chariot races. That's how wide the walls were. The city inside the walls was 200 square miles wide. That's about the size of of the full city limits of Chicago. This is a huge and luxurious city. One of the uh, ancient wonders of the ancient world, the seven wonders, was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. They're still wondering if that was actually in existence. Uh, Based on legend, they're not sure. But this was found in this city. In fact, the Ishtar Gate, another god they worship, uh, was decorated with bright blue glazed bricks. And they adorned them with bulls and dragons and lions. There's a picture of it uh, that was unearthed at the uh, Berlin Museum. So does this seem right? That God would use an instrument this wicked to bring correction to his people? I mean, we hear phrases, don't we? Like, hey, the punishment should fit the crime. And there's this God-ordained sense of justice in us that agrees with that. Yeah, the punishment should fit the crime. Like, parents, you know this to be true, right? How many of you are parents here? Let me see who who the parents are. So I need your help, like, uh, understand. Like, you guys get this. As parents, when we give a punishment that seems to our kids way worse than the infraction, or maybe let me do it this way. How many of you are kids here? That would be all of us, right? We've all been children. Um, when you were growing up, how many of you had an unfair 
punishment. And you're just like, wait, there's, there's three words that every kid says when they receive that infraction that doesn't seem like it fits the crime. What are the three words? That's not fair. That's not fair. My kids have said that often. And I'll admit, okay, I'll admit, there have been times, there have been a few times I've overreacted when they've done something wrong, I've done a little bit too much. I said, okay, dude, that's it. Like, like you are grounded. The, the entire Trump presidency, <laughs> you're grounded. When you grow a mustache, you can come out of that room, right? That's it. I'm done. Uh, so is that what God's doing here? Is, is this just a slight parental overreaction? Habakkuk's wondering, Lord, are, are you going to let Babylon get away with this? Spoiler alert, we'll find out the answer next week. But look at this fourth idea, preparing for God's correction. Chapter 2, verse 1, look at what he now goes to do. He says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I want you to circle that last phrase, concerning my complaint. The ESV actually doesn't get this as accurate as the NASB. Um, but listen to this same verse in the New King James. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. Here it is. And what I will answer when I am corrected. Notice that the prophet is preparing his heart to receive correction from the Lord. Okay, this is the right posture. He's not accusing God. He's questioning God and says, okay, Lord, I'm going to wait for you to correct me about my assumptions here because I'm probably wrong. And I want to understand you rightly. Pastor David Gusick says Habakkuk didn't answer God this question or didn't ask God this question because he thought God was wrong and had to explain himself. He asked it because he knew that he was wrong and he needed to be corrected. His questions were his invitation to God saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I know that you are right in all things. Please speak to me and correct me. Now, church, how often... <laughs> Do we take the opposite approach? Maybe it's just me. We take the opposite approach. God, you owe me an explanation for this problem. God, how dare you? How dare you, Lord? And yet I believe there's a fundamental truth that we need to learn here. Fundamental truth. And that is that God will work in his way. He'll work in his timing. He'll work for his glory. And he'll work for his people's good. Let me repeat that. God will work in his way in his timing, for his glory, and for his people's good. Our posture is not to counsel God, to correct God, to inform God, to remind God. You're not God's administrative assistant, okay, where you say, okay, good morning, Lord. You have a 9 o'clock today, and uh, just to remind you, there's a major issue we need to deal with. It's called my husband. And so I've put off all your appointments today. You need to deal with this one today, Lord. Right? We're not his assistants. He's at work and he will do it in his timing. So Habakkuk says, I'm going to take my stand on a watch post or on a rampart. Most scholars believe that's figurative, not literally a physical place. So what does that mean? It means he's inwardly preparing his heart to receive from the Lord. Like the other Old Testament prophets, he's in a position of being open and receptive and listening to God speak to him. Now, like Habakkuk, we should be willing to stand at the watch post, station ourselves, and wait to hear from God. And I think that's a wonderful place to be as a follower of Christ. 
How do we do that? How do I hear God speak to me? There's a Babylon B article the other day that says man has Bible open and five feet, five feet away asks for God to speak to him. <laughs> no, we need to open the scripture say, Lord, speak to me. I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, I want to spend time with the Lord. What a wonderful advantage. And I pray that we take advantage of that opportunity every single day. So many Christians have today what I call spiritual ADD. You know what I mean by that? Like, they're just, they can't sit still and listen. You've got to be on to the next thing. It's like sitting next to that person on a bench who has the restless leg. Have you ever sat next to someone like that? And they start, like, moving their leg, and the next thing you know, you're shaking. You're like, just, you know, I've sat next to guys like that, and I just want to put my hand on their leg. Like, can I pray for you? What's going on here? But some of us have that spiritually. We're, we just can't sit still. We can't wait on the Lord. And what happens is they kind of say a pat prayer and then they go do whatever they want to anyway. And then later they kind of pepper and sprinkle in some Bible verses to say, yeah, yeah, and try to clarify what happened. That wasn't God. You needed to wait on the Lord. That's not trust, right? Abraham was tempted to fulfill God's promises to him in his own timing. And what was the result? Ishmael. And I fear that Many times I look back at my life and the time that I tried to help God fulfill his promise to me. And what do I see? I see a past littered with a bunch of Ishmaels, right? Our generation, and what do I mean by that? Meaning those who are alive on the earth today, whether you're a millennial, a Gen Xer, a baby boomer, the silent generation. Our generation who is alive together on the planet today, we collectively need to learn this. This is not just for young people. This is for all of us. We need to learn to wait upon the Lord, to have a posture of submission to his plan. Church, we need to be strong, take heart, and wait on the Lord. Do you need this morning to trust God for a specific answer to prayer? You need to wait on the Lord. This morning, do you need him to bring a resolve to a difficult situation? You need to wait upon the Lord. Do you Feel overwhelmed and you're ready to run on to the next chapter in life? No, don't. You need to wait on the Lord. Now, I want us to apply this passage of Scripture with uh, three take-home questions this morning. So if you're taking out three questions for us to ask. This is for you. This is for me. I'm not pointing the accusing finger. I'm asking myself these three questions. I'm asking our elders, our deacons, our team, uh, the visitor, the guest, the grandfather, the grandmother, the young person. We're, I'm asking all of us these questions. Number one, are you worshiping the wrong object? You see, Babylon, according to Habakkuk, began worshiping their net. Well, what is the net? For Babylon, the net was the instrument that brought them luxury and comfort. Hmm. For us, the net represents any means that brings comfort and prosperity and ease that can easily turn and become the object of our worship. Adrian Rogers said they had something that worked so well and was so slick that tragically they started to worship it and to worship anything other than Almighty God is by definition idolatry. See, some of us worship our image or our success or our kids, our socioeconomic status. We love to get that car washed and we pull that classic car up to the stoplight and we look over at the guy next to us who's driving something less affordable and we kind of look with a little bit of pride. We feel it swelling up in us. Some of us love to look on our statuses and we see how many likes have been given and we suddenly feel this sense of worth uh, based on popularity. Others of us worship our own wisdom or righteousness and we look at our outward achievements and then we believe falsely that God owes us a salvation or a blessing because of our piety. 
or that we deserve heaven because of how good or humble we are. And we think, hey, I'm successful, so God's overlooking my secret sin. No, all of that is idolatry. You see, John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, the end of his first epistle, he wrote this. We are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. And then he says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's it, no goodbye, no, you know, greet each other with a holy kiss, just drops the mic right there. What is he saying here? He's saying that Jesus Christ alone is the one true God. And in him is found hope and life. And then he says, right after that, keep yourselves from idols. Meaning, anything that you turn to, to find hope, source, life, existence, uh, meaning, anything apart from Jesus, by definition, is an idol. So church, are you worshiping the wrong object? You need to repent. Secondly, question for all of us, are you willing? Are you willing to submit to God's sovereignty? Habakkuk had to submit his life to God's ultimate plan. God would raise up kings and empires, and he would use them for his glory, even against his own people for correction, even Babylon. So Habakkuk and all of God's servants, for that matter, we must trust that God is in charge and he's in control and his timing is perfect and he works all things for our good. But elephant in the room, some of us don't like to give up control. We can sometimes theologically say, I'm not going to land on that yet. I'm still trying to figure out God because we want control. Some of us are perfectionists and it's not going to be easy kind of relinquishing. Oh, I've got I've to at least get my hands dirty, Lord. I'm not going to sit down and just trust you and just wait. I've got to have some part to do with it. And we don't want to relinquish that control. We fear that it's not doing it the right way. But listen, he's faithful. He's eternal. He's steadfast. He's holy. And we can absolutely rest in his sovereign grace. I like what Spurgeon said. His analogy was that of a, a person going out on a boat, on a ship. He said, look at the faith of the master mariner. I've often wondered at it. He looses his cable. He steams away from the land for days, weeks, or even months. He never sees sail or shore. Yet on he goes day and night without fear till one morning he finds himself exactly opposite to the desired haven toward which he has been steering. How has he found his way over the trackless deep? And Spurgeon says that he's trusted in his compass, his nautical almanac, his glass, and the heavenly bodies, and obeying their guidance without sighting land, he has steered so accurately that he does not have to change a single point to enter into port. Listen, this is not recklessness. This is not irresponsibility. This is not foolishness. It's called faith in a God who's greater than our trials, he's greater than our weaknesses, and he's greater than our tribulation. We can trust him. So the question is, are you? Are you willing to submit to his, his sovereignty? Finally, are you wondering this morning why? Habakkuk asks God, why? Hoping that with God's answer would come some type of a peaceful resolve in his heart. I'll get some inner peace if I can just know why. And yet... God's answer invokes more questions and concerns than he was expecting. Now, I've said this before, but many of us long for the peace that comes with understanding. Lord, I don't understand what happened. I don't understand why I'm in this trial. Why did my son die? Why did this scenario happen? I don't, I don't get it. Give me an understanding, Lord. Give me an explanation. Then I'll have peace. But that's not how God has arranged it. See, Philippians 4, 6 and 7 tells us what our posture should be. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that's a tough one, 
let your requests be made known to God. And then he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, you and I want the peace that will guard our hearts and minds, but the Lord says, it's a peace that surpasses understanding. So why do we keep seeking the peace that comes with understanding? We need to trust that God is at work. As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to close in song. Go ahead and close your Bibles. How can God be good and sovereign and yet allow suffering? The ultimate answer is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. God allowed his son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, on your behalf. It was according to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, before Adam sinned, before Adam was even created. The lamb was slain. There was a redemptive plan all along. It wasn't plan B. Jesus was to be crushed by the wrath of God for sin. And even before the cross in Gethsemane, as Jesus faced the agonies of death by crucifixion, but even more sobering than that, the reality of the wrath of God he was about to face against sin, Jesus still submitted to the Father, to his will, and he went willingly. And he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And in our trials, we must as well. Charles Spurgeon said, God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without trial. All of us today are going to endure some type of suffering. And if we're God's sons and daughters, we can be sure he's going to lovingly discipline us for our good and for his glory. But as we close, I wonder if you're still asking God why. I still don't know why, Lord. I'm trying to get it, but I don't understand it. Well, after the death of his wife, a pastor by the name of Vance Havner was inconsolable. His wife died, didn't expect it. And in one of his last books, Havner says this. He says, I think of a year that started out so pleasantly for my beloved and me. We had made plans for delightful months ahead together. Instead, I sat by her bedside and watched her die of an unusual disease. She expected to be healed, but she died. Now all hopes of a happy old age together are dashed to the ground. I plod alone with the other half of my life on the other side of death. My hand reaches for another hand, now vanished, and I listen at night for the sound of a voice that is still. And I'm tempted a thousand times to ask, my God, why? But see, Havner ends his book with this paragraph. I love this. He says, you need never ask why. Because Calvary covers it all. When before the throne we stand in him complete, all the riddles that puzzle us here will fall into place and we shall know in fulfillment what we now believe in faith, that all things work together for good in his eternal purpose. No longer will we cry, my God, why? Instead, alas, will become alleluia. All question marks will be straightened into exclamation points. Sorrow will change to singing and pain will be lost in praise. Amen. We can rest our lives, our deaths, our eternities on the power of the gospel and the truth of who God is. So do that today. Father, we pray that you would allow us to rest where we want to work, where we want to fret. Help us to fret not where we want to get active and begin to be anxious, Lord, help us to, with everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present our requests to you. 
and know that your peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who is our wisdom, righteousness, and redemption, who took our place. And that, of all things, the cross was unfair. And yet, because of what Jesus accomplished, we now have redemption and hope and a future and salvation and we'll be with the Lord forever. Thank you, Lord, for what you accomplished, what men and what sin and evil meant for evil, you intended for good. We love you and we pray that you'd help us, Lord, as the disciples prayed, help our faith, our unbelief. Lord, we want to have greater faith. So we trust you, we love you, and we sing to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and just affirm, declare again our faith in Jesus. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.